Good evening to all of you. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Although it's a Saturday, it's still considered as our worship service to God. Especially today is the Christmas Eve, the night before our Lord Jesus Christ was born. Uh, I'm still nervous. Although I tried to bargain with Pastor Sunny that can I speak tomorrow instead? Because I'm thinking tomorrow might not be a lot of people. But looks like it's the other way around. The title of my message this morning, it's called The Glimpse of Grace in the Old Testament. As uh, we have witnessed for the past few Sundays, except last Sunday, as we witnessed the children's uh, cantata, the Sunday school, they did a good job in performing to us cantata through singing and even the message of the uh, songs, it really hits a lot of us, especially this Christmas. And we'd like to thank you, uh, the superintendent, Sister Joanne, and Sister Wilma, and also the youth coordinator, Sister Paula, for taking care of the kids. No, it's not easy uh, to do that, to gather all the kids and start singing, especially those little ones. When they start singing, it melts your hearts away, right? Uh, for the past uh, few Sundays, uh, they, we talk about you know, the typology of Christ. Uh, most of the speakers, uh, this as uh, an icebreaker. Uh, but for me, I'm just going to tell you one particular, it's probably a fictional story. One uh, particular Sunday or a particular worship service, an angel of the Lord was sitting on top of the roof watching the church as they worship God, you know, doing their regular service. But it happens that one particular Sunday when the angel of the Lord was watching, there's an unexpected visit. It's from the, the enemy itself, the devil. So the angel of the Lord said, what are you doing here? Well, I come here because I like to you know, do my playtime. He said, what do you mean? You're not supposed to be here. This is the house of the Lord. You won't find anybody here that will obey you or follow you or you're going to deceive. They're all worshiping God, so there's no business for you here. And Satan said, no, I'm here because usually I go around on Sundays looking at churches because I like to do my hobby. What's your hobby? Especially during sermon time, I like to look at all the people that's worshiping God. He said, what do you mean? When they start, when the pastors start speaking, everybody start to fall asleep. So what do you mean by that? Well, I could start sitting on their eyelids because if they start falling asleep, you know, a tired mind, it's a devil's playground. So watch out whenever they speak. So when Satan starts sitting on your thing, don't do that because then he will surely try to play in his, you know, do his hobby. From the introduction of the biblical typology on how to study and understand the Old Testament, characters, events, promises, prophecies, and many more that points to the birth of Christ and his ultimate redemption of mankind. I remember, uh, if you remember, when uh, Pastor Sani, you know, gave us the introduction about the typology of Christ and how to do it. Remember the three Ps? The preview, the pattern, 
and the purpose. We heard the first prototype of man after God's own image of Adam. Then the priestly order of Melchizedek that points to the priesthood of Christ. And the story of Jonah inside of a belly of a great fish that points to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. See, the Old Testament character I choose, or I chose, is to be the type of Christ is David. Everybody was saying, David, it's so, you know, so obvious, right? He showed grace to Mephibosheth in Second Samuel chapter 9. Uh, they suggested that I would go with the other one, David and Goliath. But uh, later on, I can explain why I didn't do that. Well, before I share the glimpse of grace in this Old Testament, David is a type of Christ. I just like to compare our uh, David to our Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture teaches that Christ is the prophesied son of David who will one day rule on his father's throne over Israel and the world. However, sometimes in the scripture, Jesus is simply called David. For example, in Ezekiel chapter 37, my servant David will be king over them and there will be one of shepherd for all of them. They will follow my regulations and carefully observe my statutes. Because of this language, some people actually believe God will resurrect David to rule over Israel in the millennial kingdom in Revelation chapter 20. However, it seems that God is just using the name David to refer to the Messiah as the son of David. In Jeremiah chapter 23, it says, I, the Lord, promise that a new time will certainly come when I will raise up them a righteous branch, a descendant of David. He will rule over them with wisdom and understanding and will do what is just and right in the land. Under his rule, Judah will enjoy safety and Israel will live in security. This is the name we'll go by. The Lord has provided us with justice. David was one of the clearest types of Christ, as is seen in the fact that Redeemer is called David. Again, in the book of Ezekiel 34, chapter 34, David was a shepherd from Bethlehem to who was chosen by God to be the king of Israel. David was a mighty warrior king. Jesus was a mighty warrior king. David was a shepherd king who ruled over God's people in faithfulness. Jesus is the good shepherd and the king of kings who rules over God's people in perfect covenantal, covenantal faithfulness. David faced up against the enemy of the Old Testament church and defeated them with his own weapon. Jesus faced up against the ultimate enemy of the church and defeated him with his own weapon as well. See, David was a type of Christ that he entered into the battle of representative warfare. This is what I'm talking about. David versus Goliath, Christ versus Satan. David had a number of men who were with him in his suffering. Jesus had a band of mighty men who were with him through the period of his humiliation and suffering. Jesus' mighty men were with him. Sorry, David had a betrayer who, when his plot was uncovered, went and hanged himself. Jesus also had a betrayer who, when his plot was uncovered, went and hanged himself. David crossed over the brook of Kidron when he was betrayed by Ahithophel. Jesus crossed over the book of Kidron when he was betrayed by Judas. See, those comparisons can be categorized as analogy 
when understanding the Old Testament in regards to seeing Christ in the Scripture. Let me get this straight. All the characters of the Old Testament that points to the Christ as an antitype is just a glimpse of the many wonderful, important truths of the Bible that Jesus Christ fulfilled and completed. In fact, He is sitting on the throne at the right hand of God the Father. Grace. G-R-A-C-E. Grace. What do you mean by this? As a lot of people are talking about grace. Could be God's righteousness at Christ's expense. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Could be God's redemption at Christ's expense. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 to 2. And the most famous one is God's riches at Christ's expense. Philippians 4.19. We'll talk about this grace for this evening. See, without understanding this concept, you cannot have a consistent victory over sin. You will struggle with guilt. You will lack joy. You will lack motivation to serve God. Again, I'm referring to this glorious truth of grace of God. God's grace is not some stuffy theological doctrine to be filled away in your set of your notes. It is the most practical, beautiful truth in all God's word. It ought to be the core of your daily experience with God. See, we cannot even begin to scratch the surface of this subject today, but I want to motivate you to begin a lifelong pursuit and understanding of applying God's grace. But I need to warn you that Satan works overtime to confuse people on this essential truth. Some turn the grace of God into licentiousness. Jude 4. If you speak of the need of obedience, they cry for legalism. But they don't understand the true grace of God that instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Others give lip service to grace, but live under the stranglehold of legalism. Their lives deny the joy that comes from knowing God's grace. See, the doctrine of grace is expounded at the length in the New Testament. We found in Ephesians, you know, Romans, Galatians. But who would expect it will be in Second Samuel chapter 9? As King David and Mephibosheth. As some of you know who Mephibosheth is, his grandson of Saul, the enemy of David at that time. Because David was a type of Christ, he's showing kindness to the crippled Mephibosheth. The incident occurred about halfway through David's reign. The story stuck between two accounts of battles which David fought, and so it sparkles all the more by the way of contrast. David was reflecting on his dear friend Jonathan, who has been killed in the battle along with his father Saul about 20 years ago. Then David said, Is there yet anyone left to the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? That's in verse 1. See, the word kindness was mentioned three times in chapter 9. This is the key in this chapter. In Hebrew, it's word, 
Hebrew of this kindness, it's spelled C-H-E-S-E-D, chest. It's often translated to loving kindness. Loving kindness. See, it points to God's loyal, unfailing love for his people. It is related to another Hebrew one. It's Chasida, C-H-A-S-I-D-A-H. What is this? You know, last uh, two weeks ago when uh, Brother Virgil uh, said about Jonah, he pointed a picture of a dove. But this is also a kind of bird. But it's a bird that, you know, usually it's associated with babies. You know, not just the bird babies, usually it's for baby. In, in, uh, sometimes in children's stories or something, you'll see stork-carrying babies, right? So the Hebrew for this one is a stork. I cannot show you a picture of a stork. Uh, but if you grew up in the Philippines in the 70s or in the 80s, you will see this. There's no such thing as stork in the Philippines, right? Or is there? But if you look at this image of a man selling cigarettes, what do you mean by that? When they buy cigarettes, what do they buy after? Stork candy. Perhaps you wondered why we associate storks and babies. It comes from the Hebrews who observed the exceptional love and care with which the stork demonstrated toward its young. When you look at the stork, you know, taking care of its babies, usually when, they have, when, they, when you find a nest of stork, they usually they're in, up on the post, hydro pole. They go to the tallest tree. Why? It would make its nest in the tallest fir trees, safe from its enemies. It would nurture and care for those ugly, gawking baby storks with unfailing loyal love. In Hebrews, that's how God loves us. There is nothing in us to merit or deserve it. Grace stems from God's nature. You will notice that David said, Is there yet anyone, not anyone qualified, anyone worthy, just anyone? See, when Siba informed David, perhaps with a twinge of warning in his voice, he is crippled in both feet. David didn't ask how badly is he crippled. David didn't think he would be useless to have around here. Instead, he asked, where is he? And he sent for him. Let's look at uh, this slide 6. Uh, slide 6B. Grace doesn't depend on the recipient. Grace is God's unmerited favor. There are three things about God's grace that illustrated in this story of Mephibosheth. Also, as I share this to you, I would like to compare it to our, supposed to be our other scripture in Luke chapter 19, where it contrasts to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. See, there's three things when God uh, looked for us. Gra grace seeks us where we're at. Grace seeks us, seeks us where, where we're at. And number two, grace brings us to the king's presence. And three, grace gives us for the king's return. Grace seeks us where we're at. God's grace initiates 
the relationship. He does not wait around for us to come to Him. In fact, we cannot and do not come to God in of ourselves. God seeks us out and finds us where we're at. Slide 8. As C.S. Lewis, Lewis put it, I never had the experience of looking for God. It was the other way around. He was the hunter, or so it seems to me. And I was the deer. He stalked me, took an erring aim, and fired. And I'm very thankful that that is how the first conscious meeting occurred. It forearms one against subsequent peers that the whole, that the whole thing was only, only wish fulfillment. Something, some, something one didn't wish for can hardly be that. David sought out Mephibosheth. The cripple deserved nothing and was not seeking David's favor. He hadn't turned in an application to be considered for the position in the palace. In fact, he was in hiding when the king found him. These are the things when the king found him. Notice three things about God found us as illustrated in this story. It all starts with F. We were fallen in sin. We were far from God. We were fearful of God. Verse 1, we were fallen in sin. We are told that Mephibosheth was lame for both, in, in both feet. Verse 13, verse 13 and verse 3. When Mephibosheth's fathers, Jonathan, and grandfather Saul were killed in battle, his nurse realized that the five-year-old Mephibosheth was the heir to the throne, and his life was in danger. See, the common customs of Eastern monarch is that the day, that day was... Uh, was to eliminate all rivals to the throne. So she grabbed the boy in her arms and ran in panic. He fell, and I would surmise broke both of his ankle. That's why he became lame. See, without modern medicine to set the bones properly, he was left crippled for life. See, the spiritual parallel is obvious. Jesus, as Mephibosheth once walked with his father, so man originally walked with God. But sin came and man suffered the fall, which left him as a permanent spiritual crippled. Alienated from God, we are born with nature that separates us from God and prevents us from coming to God, dead in your trespass and sins. That is the condition in which we were when God sought us out. With his great love, fallen in sin, permanently damaged by that fall. By the way, Notice that Mephibosheth was not supernaturally healed of his lameness, even though he lived in the palace. Every time he clunk along the crutches in the splendor of the palace, Mephibosheth must have thought, grace, grace, grace. Even though God has saved us and seated us at the heavenlies in Christ Jesus, he has not eradicated our sin nature, old sin nature. Every time we struggle against the lust of the flesh, we ought to be reminded, grace, grace, grace. It was God's grace that sought me when I was falling in sin. Right now, I am just a spiritual crippled, but I'm living in the palace of the king thanks to his grace. Second one, we were far from God when he found us. David asked, where is he? In verse 4, 
Siba said he is in Lodibar. You know, we could paraphrase that. He is out in the tools. What is this Lodibar? It's an obscure village quite a ways north of Jerusalem and in the other side of Jordan River. See, the place itself is so barren. You know, there's no fields, no nothing. It's a place where nobody wants to go. So nobody will look for Mephibosheth there because he was in hiding. Mephibosheth knew that by the virtue of his lineage, because he's the grandson of King Saul, he could be put to death by the King David. And so he was living in quite obscurity out over there. That is where when God found us, due to our lineage from our father, Adam, we were deserving of God's condemnation and judgment. And so just quietly block God out of our lives and move as far away from his presence as we could get, hoping that he would not come looking. But God did. And that leads us to the third aspect of the condition where God found us, or when God saw us. We were far from God. We were fearful of God, the last F. Can you imagine that Mephibosheth had thought when the king's messenger knocked on his door? Come with us. King David wants to see you at the palace. So what do you think of Mephibosheth was thinking? In verse 6 and 7, it shows us that he thought that he was afraid that he would be executed. Fear is the response for any sinner who is aware of his sin and who knows anything of God's holiness. In our day, we are in danger of portraying God as a syrup is sweet that removes all fear of judgment in the hearts of mind. If you do not know Christ as Savior, you have much to fear in the presence of God. You should be afraid of death. You know, someone says you do not need to be afraid of death. Death is peaceful like going to sleep. That is a lie. You will go straight from hell. If you are outside of Christ, you face the terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire will consume the adversaries in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 27. You rightly ought to be afraid until you understand what God's grace is all about. God's grace seeks us where we're at, fallen in sin, far from God, and fearful of God. Then what does grace do? Does God seek us out to condemn us? No. Let me share the story of Zacchaeus quickly. You want me to sing the song? No. 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 So Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus was up on the sycamore tree, as all of you know in the children's story, right? <coughs> Christ seeks the loss by taking the initiative. If you look at you know, what happened to the story, as we go along, you will understand why Zacchaeus went up to that sycamore tree to see Jesus. See, Christ seeks the loss by taking the initiative. What do you mean? He's the one who went to look for Jesus. When he heard that Jesus was passing, going to uh, Jericho, uh, he went look for Jesus. Because he was a wee little man, what did he do? He climbed up the tree to see the Jesus. Zacchaeus was not seeking Christ, but Christ was seeking Zacchaeus. We are not told what motivated this despised little man to fight the crowds in order to see Jesus that day. You know, most of the commentators agreed that it was probably curious, perhaps, you have heard that the teacher had chosen a tax collector named Levi, remember Matthew, to be one of his disciples. 
or perhaps you have heard the common complaints of the Pharisees and others that this man socializes with notorious sinners. Hearing that news may have given Zacchaeus a glimmer of hope. Perhaps his guilt conscience nagged him and he thought, maybe Jesus would forgive my sins. But whatever tugged Zacchaeus to fight the crowds and finally climb up to that tree so he could see Jesus, it was not because Zacchaeus was first seeking Jesus. It was because Jesus was first seeking Zacchaeus. Just like David. He was looking for me, Bishop. Slide 12a. We know this because the Bible plainly declares there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, 11. The next slide. In Jesus himself plainly taught no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He repeats in the same context. No one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. John chapter 6 verse 44 and also in verse 65. If Zacchaeus was in that tree to seek Jesus, it was not because the Father was drawing him to Jesus. We don't know if Zacchaeus would have been content just to get a glimpse of Jesus as he passed under that sycamore tree because Jesus didn't give him a chance. Jesus easily could have passed under that tree and never looked up. The crowd was thronging around him. He was passing through Jericho in verse 1, steadfastly moving towards Jerusalem and, and the cross. But when our Lord came to the place, he took the initiative. He looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For today, I must stay at your house. Zacchaeus had wanted to see Jesus, but he had no prior clue that Jesus wanted to see him. As John Calvin notes uh, this, the astonishing kindness of our Lord, who took the initiative to seek out the notorious sinner from whom others recoiled before there was any request on Zacchaeus' part. Also, the next uh, slide in Charles Spurgeon said, Christ does not leave it to ourselves to seek him, or else it would be left indeed. For so vile in human nature that although heaven be offered and though hell thunder in our ears, yet there is never was and there never will be any man who, unconstrained by sovereign grace, will run in the way of salvation and so escape from hell and to flee to heaven. Thus, if you are seeking God today, you can know that it's not only because of the Savior's kindness in taking the initiative to seek you first. The next one, the next slide is, Christ seeks the lost personally and particularly. We don't know how Jesus knows Zacchaeus' name, but we know that Jesus is an omni, omniscience God, right? Or maybe someone told his name. But out of the people in the great crowd, the Savior zeroed in in one little man. There were probably some boys up in that tree or other in the other trees, but Jesus focused on this cheap tax collector. On several other occasions, Jesus accepted the hospitality of others, but this is the only instance where he invited himself to someone's house. He was going after Zacchaeus. 
personally. See, Jesus does not call the, the mass of humanity to himself, hoping against hope that somehow, somewhere, someone will respond and come to him. See, I used to believe in, you know, this, call it the mass evangelism. You know, they, they proclaim, you know, everything, everybody comes, and hoping that people will get saved. But someone here, rather he calls by name, and his call is effectual. It's powerful, accomplishes his purpose. Jesus will call you personally. He saw Matthew sitting in the tax office and said, follow me. He left everything behind and began following Jesus. In Luke chapter 5, he saw Peter and Andrew fishing and, and said, follow me. Immediately they left their net and followed him. Shortly after, he saw James and John mending their nets and he called them. They also immediately left the boat and their father and followed him. Matthew chapter 4. Have you had that experience where the Spirit of God was dealing with your soul? Perhaps you were listening to a sermon and you felt that it was aimed directly at you? Jesus was calling you personally and individually. Perhaps even now you can hear the Saviors calling you by name and saying, follow me. Jesus Christ seeks the lost individually by name and calls them into a personal relationship with him. See, Christ actually saved the lost. From seeking, he saves you. In other words, he did not come just to make a salvation possible for everyone, but rather to make salvation actual for those whom the Father had given to him. In John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus declared, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. Then he adds, and this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Our salvation does not depend on our weak will, but on the mighty and certain will of God, on keeping the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, when Jesus told Zacchaeus, today I must stay at your house, it was the mass of divine necessity. In the same mass of John chapter 4, verse 4, where it says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Why? He easily could have walked around Samaria as all the Jews did, but he had to pass through Samaria because he had a divine appointment there with the woman of the well and with her whole village. You know, at that time, the Israelites, they don't want to go through Samaria. They have to go around. They will walk miles and miles not to pass by there. But Jesus must by there because of this divine a necessity for, for him to meet the woman in the well. If Christ's reason for coming to the, into this world was to seek and to save those whom the Father had given to him before the foundation of the world, then that intention will be accomplished no matter what happened. Salvation is not due to the will of man but rather to the will of God. John chapter 1 verse 12 and 13. His purpose in saving the lost is never frustrated by the rebellious of sinners. Christ saves the lost, not the found. Here is, uh, people will be thinking. You may be thinking, how do I know that Christ will save me particularly? Do you see yourself as lost? Do you know that apart from God's grace, you would justly spend eternity in hell? Do you recognize that if God left you to, this, to yourself, 
you would never seek Him or believe in Him? If so, then the good news is Christ Jesus came to save sinners. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. He died for the ungodly. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. If the words lost, sinner, ungodly, fit you, then you can have hope because Christ came to save such people from their sins. But if you say, I might have faults, but I'm not lost, then I cannot offer you the Savior. Jesus came to save the lost. If you say, I'm only human, of course, but I'm not a sinner. Sorry to say, Christ did not come for you. He came into this world to save sinners. If you say, I know that I have done plenty of wrong things, but I wouldn't call myself ungodly, then I'm afraid Christ did not die for you. Scripture says that Christ died for the ungodly. From seeking and saving, he assures us when he saves. Christ assures those whom he saves. Jesus proclaims, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. That's in uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 9. It does not mean that every member of Zacchaeus' family automatically got saved because Zacchaeus did. No. A man's salvation does not extend to his wife and to children unless they personally repent and believe. Salvation is always individual and personal. But when the head of the household believes, the entire household comes under the influence of the gospel. And in that sense, it's set apart from the unbelieving word. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14, and also in Acts chapter 16. When Jesus says that Zacchaeus is a son of Abraham, he does not mean simply that he is a Jew by birth. He meant it in a spiritual sense, that Zacchaeus was now a true son of Abraham. In that sense that Paul put it this way, it is those who are of faith that are the sons of Abraham. Galatians chapter 3. Jesus used that phrase because the Pharisees self-righteously thought that they were right with God because they were physically, physical descendants of Abraham and they outwardly kept the law. But Jesus is saying that this sinner whom they despised was the true son of Abraham, possessing salvation because like Abraham, Zacchaeus believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Jesus proclaimed Zacchaeus salvation before the crowd in Zacchaeus' presence to give him the assurance of God's forgiveness. You can be sure that soon as Jesus left town, at that time, maybe Satan would have come to Zacchaeus and say, it was just a joke. You know how wicked your heart is. How can you call yourself a child of God? The self-righteous crowd would have taunted him. So you would become a follower of Jesus? Have you? It won't last. Just wait. You'll go back to your old cheating, greedy ways. But whom the Lord saves, he keeps. And whom he keeps, he assures repeatedly with his love and kindness that they are his children forever. Yeah, next slide is slide uh, 17b. As Paul put it, who will bring charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies, who is the one who condemns. Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who as the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Romans chapter 8, verse 33 and 34. 
as he goes to show nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The next slide, 17. See? Since salvation then is totally of God, we are to sit back and do nothing. Clearly not. The same Bible that says that we cannot seek after God's command us to seek Him. Romans chapter 3, verse 11. We should respond to God's command as Zacchaeus did. That's the story of Zacchaeus. Now let's go back to David and Mephibosheth. From grace seeking us where we're at, in slide 18, grace brings us to the king's presence. This is what we call the ABCs of grace, acceptance, blessings, and communion. Mephibosheth's affliction was a blessing in disguise. If he had not been crippled, he might have tried to challenge David for the throne or to escape from the king's messenger. But being crippled, there wasn't much he could do except to go along with them. It is those who recognize their needy spiritual condition who responds to God's grace. Those who think they are spiritually well often rebel or resist. But Mephibosheth came and did he find judgment? No, he found this ABC of grace. Acceptance, blessings, and communion. See, grace brings acceptance in the beloved. Quickly in verse 7, uh, chapter 9 of Second uh, Samuel, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan. David and Jonathan made a covenant with one another. See, Mephibosheth found that he was accepted by David because of God's beloved friend, Jonathan. Even so, God the Father made a covenant with his beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ, for his sake, he show us kindness. See, Paul wrote that God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which freely bestowed us on the beloved. God accepts us, crippled feet, and all because his beloved son. See, the first time I met my uh, father-in-law as We've been married, uh, my wife been married for uh, 10 years when I ma met them because they were back in the Philippines. Uh, the first time I met him, uh, I said, I'm your son-in-law. And he said, what else I can do? I wasn't here when you married my daughter. So I said, this is going to be a long and hard relationship. It's being father and father-in-law, right? I said, son-in-law. But then through the years or through the time we spent together, he turns out to be a cool father-in-law. And he, that, he, he, he said to me one day, he said, you're a good person, Alex. I'm glad that you married my daughter. And I would accept you as my son-in-law. Do you think if I don't have a relationship or if I didn't, uh, it wasn't, you know, for his daughter, my wife, you think he would have accepted me as just a person, son-in-law? You cannot just go on the street and said, you're a good person, come, be my son-in-law. No. The only reason why he accepted me is because of his daughter, my wife, right? This is true to all of us here. I hope that because our relationship with Jesus, our relationship with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, God accepts us into his family. Someone had pointed out that Mephibosheth sat at the David's table, the table 
the, the, the table. The tablecloth covered his feet. It might be in the century in Western custom in that Bible times they cover their feet. But it still makes the point, doesn't it? As with the Lord's table, the blood of Christ covers our crippled feet. That's the A grace, the acceptance, and the beloved. The next slide is the B. Grace brings blessings beyond all measure. In verse 7, it says, I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul. See, it mentioned here in verse 10 that Seba have many sons and servants. They are all servants to Mephibosheth. Grace upon grace, superabundant and overflowing. Remember in the Philippines uh, in the 70s, uh, one of the missionaries, uh, sorry, one of the uh, person that donated money to the missionaries, they gave it to a local pastor in the Philippines. It's a hundred US dollar. That time, the 70s, 100 US dollars is a lot of money. So this, uh, this, this missionary, instead of giving the whole $100 to the local pastor, because he thinks that's too much to give it to him. So what he does is he sends him $5, 5 US dollars each time. So each time he sends $5 US dollars to the pastor, when the pastor received it, he was overjoyed. With, you know, he was overwhelmed with the money. And there's a note in says there, more to follow. So a week later, another money came and says a note again, more to follow. Another week and a week, the pastor got excited because he kept saying more to follow, more to follow. See, God's grace toward us is like that, more to follow. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him for us, for all of us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? More to follow. Blessed be the Father, blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Ephesians chapter one. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to godliness. God's grace does not withhold any blessings that would be for our benefit. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. That's the A, acceptance, the B, the blessings, and the last one is the C. The grace brings communion with the king and his children. Mephibosheth ate regularly at the king's table. It was mentioned four times, verse 7, verse 10, 11, and 13. Can you imagine what it must have been like for Mephibosheth? He was crippled living in Lodibar means a place without order, no leader at that place when I explained later, earlier. He is brought to the capital city of Jerusalem where he ate all his meals at the same table as the most powerful monarch in the world, sharing life with the royal family. Even so, God has called us into fellowship with himself and his son. He has made us members of his family where we share together the bounty of his table. His grace that brought us, brought us into sweet daily communion with the King of Kings and His children. Thus, grace seeks us where we're at. Grace brings us to the King's presence. The last one, grace keeps us for the King's return. Slide 20. To see this point, we must turn 
to the sequel in chapter 19, verses 24, 20, uh, 30. We didn't read that one, but the story of this one is when David's son Absalom rebelled against him, and David was forced to flee Jerusalem. Jimmy Pubishet had a plan to go along, but Siba, remember the servant, deceived him and left him with left without him. He then lied by telling David that Pubishet was hoping for the kingdom to be restored to him. In chapter 16, you know, because David has to flee because of Absalom, of the, because of the coup d'état, so he's thinking that uh, maybe Mephibosheth will get the king, you know, the 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 rich from the kingdom, the kingdom. But David hastily gave Mephibosheth the land to Seba. Now David has returned, and Mephibosheth goes to meet him in verse uh, in chapter uh, 19, verse 24 to 30. See, this part of the story illustrates that the believer who has received God's grace, waiting faithfully for the return of the king. See, Mephibosheth's appearance and his words demonstrate his response to David's kindness and reveal how God's grace keeps us the return of Christ. See, thinking about Mephibosheth, he receives all this kindness from David. But when David left, that's an opportunity for him to get the kingdom. But he didn't. Why? God's Grace keeps us living loyally in His presence. Mephibosheth adopted in the appearance of a mourner. A usurper was on the throne, and Mephibosheth could not enter into the frivolity of Absalom's court while David was in rejection. Mephibosheth's heart was loyal to David, and his lifestyle reflected it. See, right now, our king is absent from this earth. A usurper, the ruler of this world, is temporarily on the throne. But the day is coming when the usurper will be put down and Christ will return to rule. In his absence, the fact that we have received his grace should cause us to live apart from the things of this world. It must grieve our Lord when those upon whom he had poured out his grace live for worldly pleasures as if the kings were not returning. The next slide, 20B. Grace keeps us living long living longingly for his presence. When David realized his mistakes in giving Seba the land, you and Seba shall divide the land, in verse 29 of chapter 19. See, scholars are not sure whether this means that David restored the original agreement with Mephibosheth owning this and Seba working in the land, or whether David was, wasn't sure who was the right hand divided things evenly. Or David may have been testing Mephibosheth, even as a king Solomon later tested the two women claiming the same baby. See, the important thing is to note Mephibosheth's response. This should be our response, all of us. Chapter 19, verse 13, Second Samuel. He said to the king, Let him even take it all, since my lord the king has come safely to his house. He didn't want the land. He wanted the person of the one who had shown him such kindness. Such kindness. Are you after God for his gifts or for the joy of knowing God himself? God's grace should make us long for Christ's return. When we will see him face to face, the king himself is our delight. Now in conclusion, here's I'm going to close. In 1981, a California police staged an intensive search for a stolen car and its driver. They even placed announcements on radio stations in 
their attempt to contact the thief. On the front seat of the car sat a box of crackers that unknown to the thief were laced with poison. The car owner had intended to use them as a rat killer, but now the police and the car owner were more interested in apprehending the thief to save his life than to recover the car. Like that thief, many people run from God thinking that he is after them to punish them for the wrongs they've done. But God is after you so that he can show you his grace and kindness. Jesus Christ bore the penalty for your sins. If you do not receive his grace now, you will face his judgment in the future. But today is the day of salvation. Perhaps you have trusted Christ as our Savior, but you have forgotten his grace. You have been trying to earn his favor instead of realizing that his grace has provided all. Perhaps you have forgotten his grace and have drifted into the world. His grace is seeking you to bring you back to his presence and to keep you for his return. David kept his promise to his friend Jonathan and extend his loving kindness to Mephibosheth. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? David clearly shows to be the type of Christ. Because David was a type of Christ, he's showing God's kindness in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 3, to the crippled Mephibosheth served as an illustration of God's grace to fallen sinners and spelled out clearly in the New Testament. The Lord Jesus always kept in view the purpose of his coming to earth. He states in Luke chapter 19, where the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus, the timbers of the Gospel of Luke is, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Especially this Christmas, just like to all of us here, being a recipient of the ABC of grace, acceptance, blessings, and communion of God's grace, we can all be the type of Christ that points to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by showing serving and sharing the gospel to others that's why we are called christians it means little christ grace to all may his name be praised always merry christmas to all god bless brethren let's pray the lord bless you and Just.